Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad that you've decided to join. Today, Detroit Today and WDET are going to join organizations all around the country in celebration of MLK Day, including by playing the entirety of his landmark I Have a Dream speech, originally delivered right here in Detroit in June of 1963. But as we think about this national holiday, it gives us time to reflect on what Martin Luther King Jr. meant to this country, and not simply as a civil rights leader, but to try to truly understand King as someone who really embraced the idea of equality, equality of all kinds. He emphasized, of course, things like voting rights and citizenship and the health of our democracy. And that was what his activism was focused on. How deep are Dr. King's impacts on our social movements today? and the social movements that took place specifically here in Detroit. What were his ties with other organizations like the NAACP? To talk about all this and reflect on Dr. King's life, we've got Reverend Wendell Anthony here. He is the president of the NAACP Detroit branch and has held that position for 23 years. Reverend Anthony, it's always great to talk to you, but especially on King Day, I feel like yours is a voice that kind of shines the light uh, on our on our future and makes us hopeful. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Happy New Year to you. Uh, and, and let me just say this, man. I don't want to cheat myself. I've really been president since 1993. It's 30 years. It's 30 years. That's right. Yeah, 30. Oh my well, goodness. actually, this year it'll be 30. I'm going into my 31st year. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, wow. My I had planned on it, but, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, that for a lot of us, it's hard to think of the NAACP without your leadership and certainly to remember it, right? I won't yeah, tell you I, how old I was in 1993. Right. I know. <laughs> you was around when I first started. Um, That's right. Arguing and debating and challenging and all of that. That's right. So it ain't stopped. But, yeah. no, um, you know, we are. Are, uh, in celebration, uh, not just celebration, but commemoration of the king, the drum major for justice, uh, the prince of peace for the uh, 20th century and beyond, and one who was not just a dreamer, Stephen, you and I both know, he was a doer, he was mm -hmm. a worker. Mm -hmm. He was one who had not just a dream, but a plan. Uh, his plan was for America to live up to its creed that all men, women, children, boys, girls, regardless of race, ethnic background, orientation, worker, labor, executive, whatever you happen to be, would be treated would be treated equally, fairly, with dignity and respect, and could enjoy the fruits of this nation. And unfortunately, the nation was not living up to its creed. That's why he went to Washington to remind America that, you know, we're still trying to cash this check. Yeah. But every time we cash it in the Bank of Justice, it comes back um, marked insufficient funds. And so today, uh, in 2024, we're still trying to cash the check uh, and to cash the check for justice uh, and for equity and for freedom. Um, you mentioned his I Have a Dream speech, uh, which was the, obviously the pinnacle yeah. um, uh, speech that 
that the world knows him by. But Stephen, you know, I always remind people that, you know, as long as people keep him on a mountaintop dreaming, you can escape the reality of him down in the valley working. He was a worker. Uh, And that was not the only speech that he gave. Um, And for many of us, um, he had a whole bunch of prolific speeches. Uh, His speech of why we can't wait, uh, uh, knock at midnight, um, on the Jericho Road, um, the drum major instinct, uh, I I mean, the strength to love. Those are uh, messages, and his piece piece on the Vietnam War, uh, which caused a great deal of dissonance and conflict uh, and uh, division within the movement itself and within some of those who were in hierarchy, the high positions of of this government at that time because they didn't like the position that he took. So Dr. King, he challenged us then, and he still challenges us today. Yeah, yeah. So so, uh, I want to talk a little about... uh, his connection to Detroit uh, yeah. in a bit, but but before I do that, I I, I feel like uh, this year uh, on this day, especially given what we're seeing happen in this country uh, on a number of different fronts, uh, you know, it's worthwhile thinking about uh, Dr. King's message and how it can be leveraged. Today, to, to, to kind of, um, you know, of course, keep progress moving, but also to help people really understand uh, what he was really about. And, and I, I want to cite a specific example that I think uh, that kind of pulls this out. This controversy at Harvard over uh, the president there, the former president, Dr. Claudine Gay, the first African-American yeah. woman uh, to ever uh, sit in that chair. Um, which saw her run off essentially uh, that campus um, uh, has has evolved into an attack on the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. A, a lot of people who tried to get rid of her said that uh, she was an example uh, of the excess, quote unquote, of of DEI and the the inappropriate. Uh, mission of of DEI and a lot of these people saying this are quoting Dr. King. They are uh, they are taking you know bits and pieces of things he said to suggest that he wouldn't support uh, the elevation of uh, African Americans to new heights in academia or in business or or places like that. So so I want to talk just a bit about the the work. I feel like we still have to do making it clear who Dr. King was, what he stood for and why, and how that still really matters uh, today. There's no question that uh, uh, Dr. King would be on the side of DEI uh, today. Mm-hmm. And, but there are a lot of people who still don't know that and don't understand it. You, 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 you strike at the heart of one of the, the basic challenges that we face. Uh, there are people who will distort history and, and, and revise it to uh, comply with their own version and direction and vision of where they want this country to go. Uh, There are people, Stephen, who would take the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus the Christ and make it into (laughs) a sermon below the Mount uh, and and distort uh, the mission as to why he came here um, uh, to deal with the poor and the hungry and the oppressed and the needy. You can distort anything. 
it is unfortunate that what has happened uh, to the um, first African-American uh, woman um, uh, to be president at Harvard, uh, this first uh, among firsts, uh, that it has fallen out like that for no other reason than her basic thrust to represent and to reflect what academia is supposed to be about and the uh, truth of intellectual discourse and discussion, and that she refused to take a position that some people were trying to force her into. Um, And it was not that she was doing anything other than what the university would have her to do. And they've even challenged now her credentials, mm-hmm. saying that, well, she was borderline anyway. She wasn't all that. Well, bull. If she wasn't all that, she would never have been retained as the head of one of most, the most prestigious universities in America. So we face the danger of that. It's even broader than that when you consider the banning of books. There are people that want to ban uh, the book while we can't wait. They want to ban the study of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They want to ban the study of uh, Rosa Parks and and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and Ida B. Ida B. Wells. They, they don't want to hear and deal with that because it goes against the grain of what they want this nation to be. We're challenged by that. Dr. King fought for that. Dr. King would have been on the front row cheering uh, for diversity and inclusion. He fought for women's rights. He fought for workers' rights. He even moved to talk about reparations. He supported reparations in this nation. He talked about the fact that reparations had been given uh, to white folks, farmers, and uh, to veterans, that that was a form of reparations. And certainly, if there's going to be that, then African Americans who have been and still are displaced around this country uh, by laws and by restrictions should also be considered for that. Um, People wanted, they, they accused him of being uh, very conservative. They, they want Dr. King's uh, glory, but they don't want his real story. Yeah. They want Dr. King to be sitting on a mountain dreaming. I have a dream uh, for, these, uh, for the children to, to walk together, black, white, uh, and young and old, and not to be discriminated against by the color of their skin, but just by the content of their character. Well, okay. But when it comes to policy, when it comes to implementation of those things that Dr. King would do in a plan, then they throw their hands up and they can't deal with that. And so there's a contradiction. There's a total hypocrisy that we have to deal with when it comes to that. Dr. King understood the impact of the historic enslavement in this nation as a result of the situation black folk find themselves in. We are still dealing with the remnants of that. And unfortunately, we live at a time now when we got people running for office. Nikki Haley, that don't know slavery was the cause of the Civil War. That's one. Ron DeSantis, who thinks that black people benefited from enslavement uh, because they were slaves. And Donald Trump, who want to put us back in slavery. So, I mean, darn, what, what do you want us to do by virtue of this? And so we better dig deeper. We need to understand that when he talks about education, he talks about the fact that education is critical thinking, teaching you to be critical thinkers. We must be engaged. We have to go out and dig deep. We have to get involved. We got to insist that our companies and the corporations and our institutions still respect diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right now, there's even a move to stop private companies. Mm-hmm. There is a lawsuit pending 
to stop private companies who want to give grants to small businesses, African-American and Latino, black and brown people and women to stop them from being able to do that using the case of the Supreme Court that says you can't use race and you can't use this to be diverse anymore. The Supreme Court did not say all of that. They're using that as an excuse to push the envelope even further. And I'm saying that we cannot stand by and just watch this happen. Mm -hmm. We ourselves have got to make some other things happen in spite of all of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I always kind of fall back on with Dr. King is, yes, this was someone who was for peace, who was for togetherness, but he understood that couldn't happen without justice and that the, the work is about bringing about justice. Right, and peace, as he said, and you pointed it out, is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of justice. That's right. And that's why when you hear people march and they say, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Because if you really want true peace, then you got to introduce and maintain justice into the equation. Black young people are marching through Black Lives Matter and black, and certainly Dr. King, who was the original Black Lives Matter marcher, because that's why he marched, because yeah. black lives were not, were not mattering at that time. So he wanted to make sure that they were mattering. He indicated, by virtue of what he was doing, uh, that black lives were mattering and that uh, you cannot have true peace without justice. And we still... Uh, find ourselves in that situation today with young people. They want justice. They want equity. All lives matter. In case somebody's listening, well, thank you. Yeah, we know all lives matter, but unfortunately, they don't matter equally. That's right. And that's why we have to deal with equity and diversity and inclusion until we reach that point in our history where we can just truly be judged by the character of our, uh, the content of our character and not the color of our skin or the orientation uh, of our gender or where we live or how educated we are or how uneducated we are, that we can just walk in and bam, uh, we get a shot just like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've only got about two minutes left, uh, which always I happens to us. I that, Stephen. I don't care how much time you tell me I got. <laughs> I know you always don't care, well, you know, when you try to slay it so diplomatically. Well, at any time, we, yeah, we only have much. Okay, okay Stephen. I just want, <laughs> but before we go, I want to I wanna have you talk just a little about uh, the importance of Dr. King right here in Detroit. Last year... 60 years anniversary of uh, that I Have a Dream speech that was debuted here, uh, he's still so relevant to us. Uh, and and uh, this is the day when we're supposed to really think about that and embrace it. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. King would have been 95 years of age this year had he lived. Um, and so for 95 years, um, through his life and length and breadth, uh, we have celebrated his legacy. Uh, Detroit was, of course, one of the pinnacle cities, the key city. It was number one. It was here where he came and gave his uh, first I Have a Dream speech. I know he gave it a little taste of it uh, in some other location I won't mention. Yeah. But it's here where he really did his thing. And thank God for Reverend C.L. Franklin, um, Reverend uh, Albert Clegg, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the late Walter Ruther, uh, and um, Tony Brown and um, um, Brother McFall from the funeral home, they are the ones that put that together 
so that Dr. King, through the Human Rights uh, Commission of Detroit, that he could come to Detroit and deliver his first uh, official, we say, I have a dream speech, to the degree that he did it when that march down Woodward Avenue last year. As you know, we celebrated 60 years mm-hmm. of the King. It was a great uh, uh, march here in Detroit to commemorate it. And it's a commemoration, not just a celebration. You cannot just celebrate Dr. King without commemorating him through some of the actions and the deeds. you got to vote. You got to engage. You got to open up some doors for some people. And it's not enough for you to be at the table by yourself. Um, we want you to bring some other people to the table That's with right. you. It's not enough for you to open the door and get on the other side of the threshold by yourself. Make sure that that door is wide enough for somebody else to come behind you. Don't do the Clarence Thomas. Don't get there and act like uh, the door is closed <laughs> and you're the last one. Yeah. Uh, hopefully he is the last one like that. <laughs> uh, and thank God for Katanji Brown Jackson and thank Joe Biden for that. Yeah. Uh, and we appreciate that sister being there. So, Stephen... Uh, Detroit was the place. It still is a place. A whole lot of movement has come out of here. uh, And we thank God that Dr. King came through here. Thanks to those brothers and sisters who organized it years ago uh, for the King to make his debut here and for us to continue to be the type of city community where one that's engaged, one that's forthinking, and that one that will never say die until we fight until we win, and we must win. We have no choice. Yeah, yeah. Reverend Anthony, like I said, it's always great to talk to you, but especially uh, on MLK Day, I think yours is the voice that uh, we all need to turn our ears to. Uh, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank on you, Stephen. Always a pleasure, even though you always cut me off, and I appreciate you anyway. <laughs> right. We always need more time. <laughs> Thank you, my brother. I appreciate right. you. Yep. All right, brother. Coming up, we're going to continue our annual tradition of listening to Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech right here in Detroit. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm so glad you've joined us. It's a tradition here at Detroit Today to observe the MLK Day holiday by listening to the speech he gave here in Detroit in June of 1963. That speech served as a prelude to his most famous speech given during the March on Washington two months later. My Good friend, Reverend C.L. Franklin, and all of the officers and members of the Detroit Council of Human Rights, distinguished platform guests, ladies and gentlemen. I cannot begin to say to you this afternoon how thrilled I am. And I cannot begin to tell you the deep joy that comes to my heart as I participate with you in what I consider 
the largest and greatest demonstration for freedom ever held in the United States. I think that is something else that must be said because it is a magnificent demonstration of discipline. With all of the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people engaged in this demonstration today, there has not been one reported incident of violence. I think this is a magnificent demonstration of our commitment to nonviolence in this struggle for freedom all over the United States. And I want to commend the leadership of this community for making this great event possible and making such a great event possible through such disciplined channels. continued oppression 
and exploitation of the Negro or any other minority group is the price of its own destruction. For the hour is late. The clock of destiny is kicking out and we must act now before it is too late. The events of Birmingham, Alabama, and the more than 60 communities that have started protest movements since Birmingham are indicative of the fact that the Negro is now determined to be free. For Birmingham tells us something in glaring terms. It says first that the Negro is no longer willing to accept racial segregation in any of its dimensions. But we have come to see that segregation is not only sociologically untenable, it is not only politically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Segregation is a cancer in the body politic which must be removed before our democratic health can be realized. Segregation is wrong because it is nothing but a new form of slavery covered up with certain niceties of complexity. Segregation is wrong because it is a system of adultery perpetuated by an illicit intercourse between injustice and immorality. Alabama and all over the South and all over the nation, we are simply saying that we will no longer sell our birthright of freedom for a mess of segregated pottage. In a real sense, we are through with segregation now, henceforth, and forevermore. something else. They reveal to us that the Negro has a new sense of dignity and a new sense of self-respect. 
for you. I think we will all agree that probably the most damaging effect of segregation has been what it has done to the soul of the segregated as well as the segregator. It has given the segregator a false sense of in, uh, superiority and it has left the segregated with a false sense of inferiority. And so because of the legacy of slavery and segregation, many Negroes lost faith in themselves and many felt that they were inferior, but then something happened to the Negro. Circumstances made it possible and necessary for him to travel more. The coming of the automobile, the upheavals of two world wars, the Great Depression. And so his rural plantation background gradually gave way to urban industrial life. And even his economic life was rising through the growth of industry, the influence of organized labor expanded educational opportunities, and even his cultural life was rising through the steady decline of crippling illiteracy. And all of these forces conjoined to cause the Negro to take a new look at himself. Negro masses. Negro masses all over began to reevaluate themselves. The Negro came to feel that he was somebody. His religion revealed to him. His religion revealed to him that God loves all of his children and that all men are made in his image and that figuratively speaking, every man from a base black to a treble white is significant on God's keyboard. crowd with the eloquent poet, fleecy locks and black complexion, cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black and white the same. Were I so tall as to reach the pole, or to grasp the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. But these events that are taking place in our nation tell us something else. They tell us that the Negro and his allies in the white community now recognize the urgency of the moment. I know we have heard a lot of cries saying, slow up and cool off. We still hear these cries. They are telling us over and over again that you're pushing things too fast. And so they're saying, cool off. Well, the only answer that we can give to that is that we've cooled off all too long, and that is the danger. 
way, it's a danger if you cool off too much that you will end up in a deep freeze. <laughs> well, they're saying you need to put on brakes. The only answer that we can give to that that the motor's now cranked up and we're moving up the highway of freedom toward the city of equality. And we can't afford to stop now because our nation has a date with destiny. We must keep moving. Then that is another cry. They say, why don't you do it in a gradual manner? Well, gradualism is little more than escapism and do-nothingism, which ends up in standstillism. <laughs> we know that our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence. And in some communities, we are still moving at horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a hamburger and a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. And so we must say now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to transform this pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our nation. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of racial justice. Now is the time to get rid of segregation and discrimination. Now is the time. And so this social revolution taking place can be summarized in three little words. They are not big words. One does not need an extensive vocabulary to understand them. They are the words all here now. We want all of our rights. We want them here and we want them now. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up on Detroit Today, the conclusion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s original I Have a Dream speech delivered in Detroit in June of 1963. see about this struggle is that by and large it has been a nonviolent struggle. Let nobody make you feel that those who are engaged or who are engaging in the demonstrations in communities all across the South are resorting to violence. These are few in number, for we've come to see the power of nonviolence. We've come to see 
that this method is not a weak method, for it's the strong man who can stand up amid opposition, who can stand up amid violence being inflicted upon him and not retaliate with violence. You see, this method has a way of disarming the opponent. It exposes his moral defenses. It weakens his morale, and at the same time, it works on his conscience. And he just doesn't know what to do. If he doesn't beat you, wonderful. If he beats you, you develop the quiet courage of accepting blows without retaliating. If he doesn't put you in jail, wonderful. Nobody with any sense likes to go to jail. But if he puts you in jail, you go in that jail and transform it from a dungeon of shame to a haven of freedom and human dignity. Even if he tries to kill you, you develop the inner conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. This method has wrought wonders as a result of the nonviolent freedom ride movement. Segregation in public transportation has almost passed away absolutely in the South. As a result of the sit-in movement at lunch counters, more than 285 cities have now integrated their lunch counters in the South. I say to you, there's power in this method. And I think by following this approach, it will also help us to go into the new age that is emerging with the right attitude. For nonviolence not only calls upon its adherents to avoid external physical violence, but it calls upon them to avoid internal violence of spirit. It calls on them to engage in that something called love. And I know it is difficult sometimes. When I say love at this point, I'm not talking about an affectionate emotion. It's nonsense to urge people, oppress people to love their oppressors in an affectionate sense. I'm talking about something much deeper. I'm talking about a sort of understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. We are coming to see now, the psychiatrists are saying to us that many of the strange things that happen in the subconscious, many of the inner conflicts are rooted in hate. And so they are saying, love or perish. But Jesus told us this long time ago, and I can still hear that voice crying through the vista of time, saying, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. 
That is still a voice saying to every potential Peter, put up your sword. History is replete with the bleached bones of nations. History is cluttered with the wreckage of communities that failed to follow this command. And isn't it marvelous to have a method of struggle where it is possible to stand up against an unjust system, fight it with all of your might, never accept it, and yet not stoop to violence and hatred in the process? This is what we have. Now that is a magnificent new militancy within the Negro community all across this nation. And I welcome this as a marvelous development. The Negro over America is saying he's determined to be free and he is militant enough to stand up. But this new militancy must not lead us to the position of distrusting every white person who lives in the United States. There are some white people in this country who are as determined to see the Negro free as we are to be free. This new militancy must be kept within understanding boundaries. And then another thing I can understand, we've been pushed around so long. We've been the victims of lynching mobs so long. We've been the victims of economic injustice so long, still the last hide and the first fight all over this nation. And I know the temptation. I can understand from a psychological point of view why some caught up in the clutches of the injustices surrounding them, almost respond with bitterness and come to the conclusion that the problem can't be solved within and they talk about getting away from it in terms of racial separation. But even though I can understand it psychologically, I must say to you this afternoon that this isn't the way. Black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. No, I hope you will allow me to say to you this afternoon that God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race. And I believe that with this philosophy and this determined struggle, we will be able to go on in the days ahead and transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. As I move toward my conclusion, you're asking, I'm sure, what can we do here in Detroit to help in the struggle in the South? Well, there are several things that you can do. One of them you've done already, and I hope you will do it in even greater dimensions before we leave this meeting. Now the second thing that you can do to help us down in Alabama and Mississippi and all over the South is to work with determination to get rid of any segregation and discrimination in Detroit. Realizing that injustice anywhere is a threat 
to justice everywhere. And we've got to come to see that the problem of racial injustice is a national problem. No community in this country can boast of clean hands in the area of brotherhood. Now in the North it's different in that it doesn't have the legal sanction that it has in the South, but it has its subtle and hidden form. And it exists in three areas. In the area of employment discrimination, in the area of housing discrimination, and in the area of de facto segregation in the public schools. And we must come to see that de facto segregation in the North is just as injurious of the actual, as the actual segregation in the South. And so if you want to help us in Alabama and Mississippi and over the South, do all that you can to get rid of the problem here. And then we also need your support in order to get the civil rights bill that the president is offering passed. And that's a reality. Let's not fool ourselves. This bill isn't going to get through if we don't put some work in it and some determined pressure. And this is why I've said that in order to get this bill through, we've got to rouse the conscience of the nation and we ought to march to Washington more than 100,000 in order to save. In order to say that we are determined and in order to engage in a nonviolent protest to keep this issue before the conscience of the nation. And if we will do this, we will be able to bring that new day of freedom into being. If we will do this, we will be able to make the American dream a reality. And I do not want to give you the impression that it's going to be easy. There can be no great social gain without individual pain. Before the victory for brotherhood is won, some will have to get scarred up a bit. Before the victory is won, some more will be thrown into jail. Before the victory is won, some, like Medgar Evers, may have to face physical death. But a physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children and their white brothers from an eternal psychological death, then nothing can be more redemptive. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names. But we must go on with a determination and with a faith that this problem can be solved. And so I go back to the South not in despair. I go back to the South not with a feeling that we are caught in a dark dungeon that will never lead to a way out. I go back believing that the new day is coming. And so this afternoon I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day, right down in Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to live together as brothers. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day little white children and little Negro children will be able to join hands as brothers and sisters. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, 
One day, men will no longer burn down houses in the church of God simply because people want to be free. I have a dream this afternoon that there will be a day that we will, not long, we will no longer face the atrocities that Emmett Till had to face or Medgar Evers had to face, but that all men can live with dignity. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children and my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within, but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon, and one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house, a rent a house, anywhere that their money will carry them and they will be able to get a job. Yes, I have a dream this afternoon that one day in this land the words of Amos will become real and justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream this evening that one day we will recognize the words of Jefferson that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have a dream this afternoon. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, and every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I have a dream this afternoon that the brotherhood of man will become a reality in this day with this faith. I will go out and carve a tunnel of hope through the mountain of despair with this faith. I will go out with you and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. With this faith, we will be able to achieve this new day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing with the Negroes in the spiritual of all, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty. That was Martin Luther King's original I Have a Dream speech, delivered here in Detroit in June of 1963. That's going to do it for us today. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home.